You hear me a lot on Tuesdays in conversation with one person. Well, today is very special because we don't just have one guest for you. We've got two. I've got an hour now. Okay. I've probably got until a couple minutes after two. I'm supposed to have a 2.15 call. Okay. We're going to move it along. Those are the voices of Katie Rogers and Juana Summers. I am Sam Sanders, and you are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I was so worried about time for this chat because my two guests have one of the most stress-inducing jobs in America right now. They are national political reporters ramping up to cover election 2020. Katie Rogers covers the Trump White House and Trump's re-election bid for The New York Times. And Juana covers Democrats heading into 2020 for the AP. I wanted to have this chat as a look-ahead for 2020, but because 2019, our chat had to start not with really big-picture, forward-looking questions, but with something Donald Trump and his supporters did before we hit the studio. Omar has a history of launching vicious, anti-Semitic screeds. I talked with Katie and Juana the week of Send Her Back after Trump tweeted racist comments about four Democratic congresswomen, all women of color. And then at a rally later that week, Trump fans shouted and chanted for one of them to, well, go back where she came from. It was the news story of the week, and we had to begin there. But that moment kind of gave us all a glimpse into how all a campaign 2020 might actually feel. So we start this chat there, but we also cover a lot more. What voters care about, whether newsrooms have learned any lessons from the last presidential election, a lot of stuff that will help you make sense of 2020. And I also ask these two very busy women how they find time for a little self-care on the trail. All right, all of that after the break. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Netflix, presenting the highly anticipated third season of Dear White People. This season, the characters will follow their hearts and passions, shed layers of identity, and take on the issues that plague them in radical new ways. If last season was about uncovering the hidden truths that hold us back, this season is about shedding the beliefs that hold us back from revolution. Rated A by Entertainment Weekly, Volume 3 of their critically acclaimed series, Dear White People, begins streaming August 2nd, only on Netflix. I'm Shankar Vedantam. This week on Hidden Brain, we kick off our annual summer series, You 2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Let me do a just check to my inbox. Just check, just check, just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain from NPR every week. At this stage uh, of the campaign season, more than a year out, how do you feel as a campaign reporter, as a White House reporter? Do you feel tired already? Do you feel energized already? Do you feel something else? Do you know how you feel? I guess we're in therapy now. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> therapy side. Sit um, on that couch. <laughs> Look, I was joking with my husband the other day that we've reached the point in the campaign cycle where my suitcase never gets unpacked. Mm. I would say that I'm both energized because I think this is one of the most fascinating stories in the country and I feel privileged to be able to cover it. Mm -hmm. It is also, particularly this week, given the racist rhetoric that we're hearing, it's also been a really exhausting Mm. week to be a campaign reporter. Mm. 
And so I do spend a lot of time thinking as a reporter, as a reporter of color, as a female reporter, like how how do we have conversations about this at home that are productive mm. when we're dealing with the news? And I wonder how families across the country are talking about things like what we saw from pres- the president's rally, from the rhetoric that we've seen around these young Congress people of color. Yeah. And how, how do we internalize that? And I just hope that our reporting is a force that helps families and people across this country understand what's going on in the, the best way that we can. Yeah. 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 I do agree. I think it clarifies a sense of mission mm. um, mm-hmm. right now. And I think that uh, in particular, the president's attacks on the media and on truth and on anybody who is against him as un-American and uh, in violation of free speech. It's a really weird argument he makes um, that saying bad things is in violation of free speech when in fact that is what free speech is. But um, yeah. It's disheartening sometimes, I think, when uh, you see different parts of America reveal itself. Uh, I was at a campaign event um, this week. for It was a Women for Trump coalition, and I was asking women attendees um, about whether they thought the president's tweets were racist. And one woman said, no, I say it all the time. And in my head, I'm thinking... Just because you say it all the time doesn't mean it's not, you know. And yeah. so the the boldness and the digging in that people have done around this particular story um, shows me that there's not as much of a fear as standing with him and yeah. sort of saying the things that yeah. they've only thought until now. Yeah. Look at our, this is what our country is showing itself to be right now, and you have to cover it and in a way that's fairly presented I guess I don't know yeah I what I found what surprised me after the election was done and as we saw the rhetoric in the country just get more and more heated over the last two or three years I started to second guess all of my interactions with voters last cycle because they were always so nice to me and they were always mm-hmm. so friendly, and they always said these things that were quite thoughtful, regardless of who they support. Like honestly, I I usually heard from people that were just nice, whether they were Hillary or Trump. And then the election's over, and we see what we are in now. And I said, "Oh my God, were they lying to me? Were they not telling me everything? What what did I miss? Like, mm-hmm. am I not wearing the right glasses? Like, and, and like that was weird. Like this second guessing of like the whole way I did it." Did you, like, have y'all felt any of that? I I guess for me, this is, by way of explanation, this is my third campaign. And I wonder if sometimes we we as an industry and myself personally, I didn't really see the forest for the trees. You know, I would Mm. isolate out these individual voters when you talk to them and they go in a story. But I wonder what would happen if I were to pull all of my old tapes and all of my old recordings from the voters that I talked about from the beginning of the 16 campaign to the end and really looked at them if... I would have seen things differently or come away with a different feeling about the electorate. Mm. And it's I'm trying to be more mindful of going back to my notes during different stages of this campaign now because of it, because I think it might just show a different picture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this race for president in 2020, it's becoming already this argument about some really big ideals and ideas like it's 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 not just an issue election. The rhetoric of this week, at least, has set up this big debate as one of like, who belongs here? Mm -hmm, What mm -hmm. is racism? Like these big existential American questions. So doing your work in that kind of environment, it is really easy 
to make the work or have the work feel like it is activism or, you know, mission based or like, like, does the gravity of the issues being debated change the way you think about your work? Like, it's not just report the facts anymore because there's some bigger stuff at play here. I think Katie made a great point about this moment that we're in underscoring just how important the mission is. And I couldn't agree more. I I think for me, it also not to get too much into insidery business stuff, but I think it increases the responsibility, I feel, at least as a person of color in a newsroom and in an industry that is predominantly white and largely male, although that's changing, to speak up about these big issues that we're talking about and to make sure that there are voices of color, voices that are different, that are involved in these issues that are being that are being involved in the coverage conversations that we're having on any given day. I think I feel more passionately about that mm-hmm. than, I, than I ever have before. Yeah. And I, but and I, but I think truly at its heart, I have always viewed journalism as a public service mm. and as a critical part of our democracy. And if anything, this this period that we're in has only made me feel that more. Yeah. Does it ever feel like activism? There's some days where it's like I'll be like reporting the most simple thing or saying the most mundane thing on Twitter. But because of the heated time that we're in, everything is taken in a weird way. And some of the most basic stuff you say, you know that someone's going to see it and think you're being like an activist. (laughs) You're like, no, I just said that this thing that is actually racist was racist or whatever, right? How do you deal with that? I feel like I get it all the time. I think a lot of us probably I think all of us probably mm-hmm. do if you're if you work for an outlet that people are aware of and and know about um so like when he tweeted on Sunday I you know I said on Twitter that it was racist and this was a racist slur mm-hmm. and then um you know writing the story on that there are just editorial discussions about do we call it racist or do we cuz we don't know what it is in his heart is always the argument or do we you know say Democrats and it was widely regarded as or um, so it's just sort of having a back and forth discussion and sometimes you're overruled and sometimes you're not but um, you know trying it it, I don't know if it feels like activism it just feels like he used the oldest oh yeah it goes back decades centuries like this is a trope that is yeah it's been here since the colonies when people were run out of the colonies for being religious dissidents it was in uh the movement to send back free slaves to africa it was embedded in a chinese exclusion act in the 1800s it was embedded in the know nothing party that was developed out of anti-irish anti-catholic sentiment Mm -hmm. and now it's fast forwarded to this day where the president of the united states is invoking the same sort of sentiment that that animated people in the 1600s yeah. about about other about who belongs here. about the yeah. other and who can be here and who can't so um in some ways this felt like we moved beyond a question of what's in his heart and he's overtly saying this yeah and he's and the leader of the country yeah. Yeah. um and so the next day i came in and did a story on the origin of go back and 5000 people responded to the times with their stories wow. about this and I I interviewed several of them and wrote a piece about it and I don't know if that's activism but like it felt like doing something a little uh, subversive by just listening to these people Mm. and elevating their voices Mm. and helping the rest of our readers understand 
why this is so hurtful. It's not just another thing that he says. Uh. Sometimes you have to actually stop and hang on to that moment as much as he tries to push you into a new Mm. news cycle. Mm. Hang on to it and actually pay attention to why people are so upset that they don't see themselves represented uh, by the person holding the highest office in the land. Mm. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the biggest mistakes journalists made covering the election in 2016 and how we can overcome that. Be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Earwolf Media, presenting Spanish Aki Presents, a brand new comedy podcast highlighting the best of the best of Latinx comedy and culture. Hosted by comedians Carlos Santos, Riza Licea, Oscar Montoya, and Tony Rodriguez. If you're asking yourself, do I need to know Spanish to enjoy this podcast? The answer is no, but you might learn a little along the way. Listen to Spanish Aki Presents in your podcast app now and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. To restore your faith in humanity, get the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Uninterrupted conversations between real people about the things that matter most. This season, we're hearing from LGBTQ voices and what life was like before Stonewall. From lesser-known victories to conversations across generations. Listen to all 12 episodes now. Have either of your newsrooms... AP or The Times made some big sweeping statement about what is going to change from 2016 to, to like 2020. Like, are there words you don't use anymore, a style that's changed, a thing that's no longer allowed? I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing that stands out is how we all figured out that we should just probably stop using economic anxiety as a phrase because <laughs> it's just a big old oh, euphemism man. for some other stuff. Juana? Yeah, you're absolutely. Um, so I'll preface this by saying I did not work at the AP in 2016. I covered mm-hmm. the 2016 campaign for CNN, so uh-huh. can't speak to the work that was done before I got here. But I mean, I think the biggest change for us is that we recently updated the style book to kind of draw a line in the sand and say that we're not going to continue oh, to yeah. use euphemisms like racially charged. They're, mm-hmm. It's nonspecific. It's uh, unhelpful. Racially and, sautéed. <laughs> Oh Didn't God. you make a joke, Sam, about racial infusion? Is that a tea or something? <laughs> yeah, like racially that? infused that was, vodka. That was, that one was bad. <laughs> That's Smirnoff. Yes. <laughs> racially infused no. Smirnoff. So y'all made that big shift at the AP, Juana. And I think it's an important one because we need to be upfront with our audience about what we're talking about here. And when we're talking about racism or racist, and I'm looking at the way that we define it now, we use those in references or in quotes to describe the hatred of a race or the assertion of superiority of one race over others. And I think that that's an important bright line that the AP has drawn and one that I just as an individual reporter think makes a whole lot of sense for how we're talking to our audience in this moment. And I was glad to see that we were not using those phrases this week. Yeah. Mm. One of the things I am still grappling with as we head into 2020 is what we do in terms of setting expectations of our readers and listeners. I think in 2016, a thing that was problematic was that A lot of newsrooms and journalists set an expectation of prediction. Polls were delivered in a way that made listeners and readers think that we knew who was going to win. And my big thing after 2016 was that, like, we should not be in the prediction business. We're journalists. We're not psychics. Our job is to cover the world as it is, not to tell you what's going to happen next because we don't know. 
I, I'm already seeing the polling industrial complex rear its ugly head every day a year out from this campaign being done. Have we, as an institution, learned the lesson of, I don't know, just not trying to predict stuff? D- does it feel like we'll do less of that this time? I mean, I certainly hope so. I spend a lot of time in our newsroom talking with our folks who do polling and who analyze our polls. And if I could wish there was one thing that the average voter or or news audience member would do is to look really critically at the polls that you're kind of taking in. Um, a lot of these polls the sta- do not meet a, just a baseline yeah. of a great standard for yeah. the industry. A lot of times I'm talking to voters, I'll hear them cite these polls. Well, I saw a poll that shows that Donald Trump is up X number of points. And it's like, well, who did that poll? How did they sample it? What was the sample size? And I know that I can't give everybody a polling class, but sometimes I wish I I really could. I would love that. I would sign up for that. Polling one-on-one with Juana Summers. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Um, What do you think is the biggest mistake of 2016 that our industry has to fix in 2020, if there is one? Um, You know, putting in context and fact-checking is really important. Um, And I think that, you know, that is, that's our responsibility, especially with the president, but also, you know, it's it's not as if the people running for the the presidency have not made embellished claims or um, inaccurate claims as well. So, um, One thing I've noticed from our more liberal readers is a lot of pushback when we do uh, fact check or, you know, call out some inaccurate or false statements that Democrats make. And um, I think, you know, it's important to realize that we have to check them just like we would the president, just like anybody else. It's a big responsibility. Um, It's a big job. So um, this is part of the process. Yeah. Just as kind of a sidebar, I think if there's one thing that I think was kind of a mistake, I think it was the way that a lot of people in our industry, and I think there's many outlets who did this, kind of interpreted the working class and the white working class mm. in particular. Mm. I think we got in kind of this this frame where there were all these kind of tropey stories where a reporter or a correspondent would go out to West Virginia in a coal mine somewhere mm-hmm. and think that that's how you tell the story of the working class. And it write, it frankly, it writes off an entire segment of non-white working class voters. Oh, yeah. I think it completely misunderstands a segment of the electorate that we need that it's important for us to know more about and that I wish that we I had spent more time learning about and understanding in 2016 and I'm hopeful that our coverage in 2020 and I see signs that it is from so many different news organizations including my own Mm -hmm. I hope that we are getting a better understanding of the people who may not necessarily always end up represented in mainstream news coverage that largely comes out of DC and New York yeah I think our biggest mistake, and this even has carried No into, one asked you, Sam. I know. Well, <laughs> I'm going to take some executive privilege here. Do it. I think our biggest mistake as an industry is us journalists thinking everyone else cares about all of this stuff in the same order that we do. Yeah. Yep. That's a good point. I think especially in the heat of like Muller Palooza, when every yeah. little incremental update of what Mueller was or wasn't doing was like front page news for a day and a half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We totally. all really cared about it. Not a lot of people outside of the Beltway did. And um, by the way, that is a really complicated case. And I struggled to understand what exactly oh, was yeah. happening yes. a oh, lot. Yeah. And I, I think that w- I, I wish during the course of that, that across the industry, we could have thought about how to make this interesting to say my father who lives in rural Indiana oh, you know yeah. how do you make 
my dad understand what this means, you know, and and I, I totally agree with you, Sam. I think that people are not plugged into this the way we are. They don't think the world is careening off of its axis the yeah. way we might. I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. But um, they probably you know, don't just, because they I practice they self-care and it. don't stay yes. on Twitter all day. They can unplug <laughs> and they, they, they can engage with the big stuff yeah. and weigh in on it and then go back to their lives. And um, for better or worse, that's the reality. And, and I think one of the challenges is... There, I, I go out and talk to people, and I'm from a part of the country where people are just tired of this. Like mm-hmm. they're tired of it. Mm-hmm. They shut down. They're fatigued, and mm-hmm. like, um, there are a lot of people who didn't vote last time who didn't step. So when you talk about whose responsibility it is, is it the media's or is it the voters who were disengaged last time and are likely to be disengaged this time? Um, you know, I think there's sort of a responsibility to be an informed citizen, just like there's a responsibility to be. Um, a reporter who puts this into context. Oh, yeah. Like, I always think about, like, my mom. My mother is an educated woman. You know, she is someone who is informed, but she just doesn't have the patience to watch the news all day. And so she knows who's out there running for president, but she's not hanging on to every tweet and every comment. No. And we have to make news that, like, speaks to her. Right. To segue from voters being fatigued with all this, I want to talk about whether or not you two feel fatigued. And if you do, how do you, like, what is your self-care regimen? I love hearing these things from journalists. I suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not great, I've got to admit. I'm trying to be more mindful about when I'm off, actually being off, and mm-hmm. be, because being off is so rare. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my counterpart in my job, Alana Shore, and she has told me that when I am off this weekend, I need to take Slack off of my phone yeah. because yeah. I am our team's worst offender of being on Slack at 4 o'clock in the morning because Ooh. I saw this interesting thing that somebody oh, no. just popped. So putting my phone down is great self-care and just spending time with family and friends not talking about politics. I'm married to a political junkie who's not in our industry mm-hmm. who always wants to tell me about the thing that he saw in the New York Times or the story <laughs> that he read yeah. in the Post at home. And it's like, nah, buddy, I do that all day. I yeah. do that all day. I saw it when the Times alerted it. And yeah. now I want to talk about anything but. Yeah. Uh, well, I do a thing <laughs> where if I travel, I try to do a face mask in a hotel room. Ooh, okay, um, okay. So I try to do like little things, but that is the saddest. That's actually really sad that I just gave that example. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so we're okay. doing the best we can. But, what uh, kind of mask? Give us tips. Give us tips. Um, so I was actually in Seoul uh, a month ago and bought like $60 worth of Korean sheet masks. So uh, I don't know what brand they are, but, you know, they're Sounds straight fancy. from the source. And I'm really <laughs> into them. They're okay. K-beauty items. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I guess the problem, though, is like tuning out when you tune out and you come back and you feel like you feel lost. <laughs> you've missed out and you're right. behind everybody. And do you just keep running as long as you can or until it's I don't know when it's over. It's not going to yeah. be it's over. It's never going to be over. It's just like when yeah. I get a new beat, I'm going to go cover the food section. Do I'm going to be a food writer. Sometimes when I'm feeling really like newsed out, I will have an entire evening when I get home from work where I turn my phone off and I leave it in my car in the parking garage. Oh my God. And so I have That's to be bold. in my apartment or go to dinner or do whatever without my phone. And I don't have yeah. it for the whole night. And I usually sleep better. <laughs> I usually wake up with a bit more clarity. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. Just being without it, like being without the constant scroll, it is free. Yeah. Can you imagine how many at real Donald Trump alerts you would have if you left your phone in the car overnight? 
and just yeah. went and picked it up the next day. No, I would. That would give me actually more anxiety. I think is yeah. not not knowing what's going on. I think makes huh. me more anxious than sitting there and having the thing in my hand yeah. constantly. Can I tell yeah. you my secret? Which is a sickness. <laughs> I, I have turned off all push alerts. My email doesn't push. My Twitter doesn't push. No Insta push. Why are you no- telling me these things? The not only fair. time that my phone vibrates is for a text or a phone call. Oh. That's so quaint. Connecting in a real way, the Sam Sanders story. <laughs> there you go. That should be the, the book name of this show. show. Done. Yeah. Let's do it. Connecting Ask him an editor way. now. Connecting in a real way. You guys are both awesome. Thanks, Sam. Right. Thank you. Talk to y'all soon. Many, many thanks again to those stellar reporters and all-around good people for joining me. Juana Summers, national political reporter covering 2020 for the AP, and Katie Rogers, New York Times White House correspondent. Both of you, take care of yourselves. Be good to yourselves. I'm rooting for you. All right, listeners, I will be talking with Malcolm Gladwell, thinker, prophet, author, podcast host, visionary. We will be talking at Lisner Auditorium at George Washington University, yeah, in D.C., on Wednesday, September 11th of this year. Me, Malcolm Gladwell, at GW. You don't want to miss it. Tickets are on sale right now. You can buy them now and get more info now at nprpresents.org. Y'all want to be there. I'm going to dress up real fancy for you, okay? It's going to be fun, I promise. All right, that's it for today. We're back in your feeds Friday with our weekly wrap. Till then, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Well, I'm still Sam. Why would I say till then? I'm already Sam Sanders. I've been Sam Sanders. It's You get it.